Okay, hi everybody. This is Danielle Karapkin from Thornhill, Ontario at the Bayant. Uh, we're studying for webyeshiva.org, the guide for the perplexed, Maimonides Morena Vuchim. Um, we are in section three, um, and we're in the middle of a discussion of the mitzvot. Um, the, as many of you may be familiar, the entire third section of the guide is dedicated to the Rambam's understanding of the last set of Ikareya Munah, the last set of principles of faith, which is that God is providential and that he rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked. And as part of that entire rubric, the Rambam is discussing the Ta'ameha Mitzvot, the reason for the commandments, which were given for man to use his free will to perfect himself and achieve that reward that God has planned for mankind. Okay, so um, uh, let's get our bearings. The, there is going to be a um, dramatic reveal that the Rambam really wants to uh, bring forth in this part, in this uh, in this parak, in this chapter, and the reveal, the big reveal that I believe the Rambam is trying to explain to us is that he has previously explained. And let me just bring up my um, uh, the handout so that you have a uh, you know some text in front of you as well while I'm speaking. But to get our bearings in the previous chapters, um, the Rambam had established that the objective of the mitzvot are for one of two purposes, either to perfect the body or to perfect the soul, or, or really more accurately, the spiritual component of man that remains immortally, which is his intellect. But he also pointed out that the sole purpose of perfecting the body is for the purpose of perfecting the soul, perfecting the intellect because that's the goal. The goal is to reach a such a high spiritual level through the development of the intellect that man um, cleaves unto God and lives immortally even after the divestiture of the body. Now, for this thesis to be correct, there is a whole plethora of mitzvot that don't seem to fit into either category A or B, which need to be explained. There are many mitzvot that don't seem to be uh, meant for the structuring of society and the beneficial of man physically. And they don't also, they also don't seem to be for the benefit of man's uh, intellectual growth or development because they don't do anything to advance man's knowledge of God. And so how do we explain why those mitzvot exist? The Rambam's approach in this chapter is quite novel and it is to express a historicity to the mitzvot of the Torah, many of which were given to pull the Jew away from practices and ideologies that were prevalent in the era when the Torah was given. Now, this is very a big dramatic claim that some would take great offense to just by virtue of the fact that it places the Torah into an historical context. There are many people who would say that that in itself is an unacceptable theological position for any great rabbi to take because it suggests that the Torah was addressing a specific time and place where certain beliefs and practices were necessary to counter what was going on at that time. And that would mean that there are certain parts of the Torah that as human beings evolve and civilization evolves, certain mitzvot may no longer be as resonant with us uh, because we don't face the same oppositions or challenges to serving God as they did in the times when, let's say, idolatry was rampant. 
And the, but the, Ram, the Rambam's position is that these mitzvot were necessary to detach one from the erroneous beliefs of the ancient world, since the persistence of these ancient beliefs would have prevented the Jew from accomplishing this goal of intellectual perfection. And so, you know, at face value, when you think about it, that what the Rambam's going to be discussing are certain commandments that are very much geared towards idolatry and idolatrous practices like the Asherah and like witchcraft and so forth and so on. You look at those commandments today, and they do seem somewhat anachronistic because we don't have those practices today such that we can't really put these things into practice. We can't eliminate witches and warlocks from the midst of the Jewish people because we're not aware that any of them exist today. That doesn't seem to be the um, the challenge to our faith today as it was perhaps thousands of years ago. So from a just from a logical standpoint, the Rambam makes sense, but it is nonetheless somewhat jarring when you hear him say it so plainly and straightforwardly that certain mitzvot in the Torah were geared towards the Jews of a certain era to enable them to um, separate themselves from certain practices that were not healthy in order for them to develop themselves uh, intellectually. Now, in order for us to understand where the Rambam is coming from, because it's a, actually a lengthy chapter, which we're going to condense a little bit today, and the reason is, is that the Rambam goes into great extent to discuss something called the Nabataean Book of Agriculture, or simply the Nabataean Agriculture. Now, what does that book mean? I'm giving you the uh, just a snippet of the uh, Wikipedia entry. The Nabataean Agriculture is a 10th century text on agronomy, um, you know, how to work the soil on agriculture by Ibn Wahshia. Um, in, born in present-day Iraq, who died in the year 930. The Rambam himself makes reference to Ibn Wahshia. It contains information on plants and agriculture, as well as on magic and astrology. It was frequently cited by later Arabic writers on these topics. So it is a text that is within the Rambam's social milieu. It is circulating in his world, and it claims to recapture the science and the knowledge of ancient agricultural practices. The Nabataean agriculture was the first book written in Arabic about agriculture, as well as the most influential. Ibn Wahshia claimed that he translated it from a 20,000-year-old Mesopotamian text. Though some doubts remain, modern scholars believe that the work may be translated from a Syriac original of the 5th or 6th century of the Common Era. In any case, it is clear that the work is ultimately based on Greek and Latin agricultural writings, heavily supplemented with local material. So already, the historical accuracy of the Nabataean agriculture is questioned by scholars today, but that's not relevant to the way that the Rambam uses it. The Rambam clearly believes that it does make reference to a, an ancient text that existed and described practices that were prevalent at the time of Avraham Avinu and shortly afterwards when the Torah was given. The work consists of some 1,500 manuscript pages, principally concerned with agriculture, but also containing lengthy digressions on religion, philosophy, magic, astrology, and folklore. Now, why would those things be on, in a book on agriculture? If you purchased a modern-day book on farming, you wouldn't find astrology and magic 
can, and philosophy contained in them. But in the ancient world, and certainly it seems in the medieval world as well, many people believed that the practice of the occult and the use of talismans and witchcraft and so forth would help you actually garner uh, certain forces that would help your crops grow. And that's really what uh, the Rambam will explain in the next chapter. Some of the most valuable material in agriculture deals with vineyards, arboriculture, irrigation, and soil science. This agricultural information became well-known throughout the Arab Islamic world from Yemen to Spain. The non-agricultural material in the Nabataean agricultural uh, agriculture paints a vivid picture of rural life in 10th century Iraq. It describes a pagan religion with connections to ancient Mesopotamian beliefs tempered by Hellenistic influences. Some of this non-agricultural material was cited by the Andalusian magician and alchemist Maslama al-Qurtubi in his Chayat al-Hakim, while other parts were discussed by the Jewish philosopher Maimonides in his Guide for the Perplexed. Voila, here we are, okay? Now, in various passages, the book describes the, and I'm skipping a lot, uh, in various passages, the book describes the religious practices of rural Iraq, where paganism persisted long after the Islamic conquest. Some of the book's descriptions suggest links between these Iraqi pagans whom Ibn Wahshia called Sabians and ancient Mesopotamian religion. The cult recognized seven primary astral deities, the sun, the moon, and the five known planets, namely Jupiter, Saturn, Mercury, Venus, and Mars. Of these, Jupiter and Venus were good, the auspicious ones, while Saturn and Mars were evil, the nefarious ones. The gods are all subordinated to the sun, which is the supreme, the supreme deity. So it's clearly a pagan uh, religion. It believes in multiple deities that are connected in some way to the celestial bodies. Um, and the name of these pagans is, who, is what Ibn Wahshia in the, the Nabataean agriculture called Sabians. You're going to find this word Sabians, some pronounce it Sabians, uh, throughout, um, throughout chapter 29 and later on as well. Um, and so I just want to make sure that we understand that when the Rambam refers to Sabians, he's referring to what he perceives as an ancient culture that existed at the time when the Torah was given, some 3,300 years ago, and that this was a very tempting culture that was sort of the, the, uh, uh, the social milieu of the entire civilized world. And it is against this kind of culture that Avraham Avinu, the very first Jew who discovers God, uh, is sort of opposing. And the, the Rambam goes so far as to say that based on my understanding of the Nabataean agriculture and the way that it describes the, that the pagan world that exists in the times of Avraham, I will be able to understand certain passages in the Torah that describe Avraham as having been oppositional to that kind of paganism. So let's get into the body of the text, and we'll just give you the outline for today. Avraham, and by the way, if you'd like to follow along in the Pines edition, um, chapter 29 begins on page 514 of the Shlomo Pines edition of the English translation of the guide. Avraham was brought up in a society of Sabaeans who believed that the celestial bodies were deities. The sun was the greatest deity of the seven, and the moon was the second greatest. So that's not part of the Wikipedia entry, that the moon was the second greatest of the, of the luminaries. The Nabataean agriculture, and by the word Nabataean, does, even though it describes a location, it also describes 
a type of vocation, a person who is a farmer. Um, it, of the Sabaeans descri describes Avraham as having rebelled against their sacred beliefs about the sun. So in the book Nabataean Agriculture, it actually makes reference to the first Jew and gives the story that is found in the Midrash about how Avraham uh, opposed the religion in in uh, in Aram, where he came from, uh, in or in in Or Kasdim, uh, in in Koldia. Avraham responded that the sun is great, but is only like an axe in the hands of the carpenter, meaning that God is the ultimate ultimately in control and just uses the sun as a tool, as an intermediary force to do his bidding. Avraham was arrested and imprisoned, according to the text. But the king, fearing that Avraham would turn the people away from the accepted faith, banished him to Syria. They do not at all relate that Avraham was privy to prophecy, since his whole belief system contradicts the Sabaeans. The Torah text confirms this narrative of Avraham being an iconoclast and going against the tide. Because the Rambam looks at the Torah text and says that, you, that this is consistent with what the Nabataeans were professing, that Avraham was a criminal, he was, uh, he, he was a counter-culturalist who, uh, um, who was trying to destroy uh, and, uh, and, uh, and uproot the accepted faith of the time. And that's why Hashem said to him, because Avraham was so reviled and so criticized in his time, uh, it says in Genesis chapter 12, God says, don't worry, Avraham. I know people hate you. People spit at you when they see you on the street. But I will bless those who bless you, and those who curse you, I will curse. And all families of man will be blessed through you. So, I mean, imagine Avraham hearing this in real time while he is being reviled and castigated by his entire society. And as the Rambam says, this prophecy has been realized ever since that time, in that the majority of the world glorifies Avraham, and they consider themselves blessed through Avraham to the point where even those who are not descended from him consider themselves his descendants. Everyone says, I am a child of Abraham, everyone who believes in this in monotheism. And what the Rambam is making reference to uh, is a section from the Jerusalem Talmud, which goes something like this, Tani b'shem Rebbe Yehuda ger atzmo mevivikore, that even a convert um, who wishes to perform the mitzvah of bikurim, of bringing first fruits to the temple. Well, you know that in the book of uh, Devarim in Deuteronomy, the Torah says that when you bring your first fruits to the temple, you have to make a recital. And that's actually what we, uh, we quote from this section of the Torah when we do the Haggadah on Pesach, where it, where it says, Arami Oved Avi, my father was a wandering Aramean, and he made it down to Egypt, and so forth and so on. And part of that uh, recital talks about how you have to say that my forefathers were Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the question that the Talmud raises is, does a convert have a right to say, Avotenu, these were our forefathers, if he's not actually uh, genetically or biologically descended from them? And the answer, says the Rambam, or says the Talmud, is yes, he can. Because by becoming a Jew, uh, he is under sort of the umbrella of Avraham, our father, because that's why Avraham's name was changed to Avraham, because he was Av Lechol Hagoyim. He was a father to all of the nations 
who would come under the wings of the divine presence. And therefore, that's the greatest sign that not only did Avraham, was he able to counter the unpopularity that he, uh, that he and the notoriety that he had in his hometown, but he became a hero to the rest of the world. The only people who remain antagonistic toward Avraham are the remnants of the Sabaeans, who live in remote locations, even though during Avraham's time, they were the prevailing faith and spread out throughout the civilized world because the Rambam understood that this book represented the people of ancient Mesopotamia. That was the, the fertile crescent that was the heartland of all of civilization. The Sabaeans believed in a pantheistic God who was the soul of the sphere, the totality of existence, including the heavens and the earth. That's what the Rambam writes. The Rambam doesn't use the word pantheism, but many of you who may be familiar a little bit with Spinoza's work know that that is considered to be uh, an unacceptable ideological theological stance on God, that to say that God is the soul or the spiritual essence of the body, which is the physical world, is not accurate. The Rambam's depiction of God uh, is, an, is the Aristotelian model of a completely transcendent God who is completely disconnected from the physical realm, not, not uh, uh, concomitant and connected with it um, uh, inexorably the way that pantheists believe. They therefore believed in the eternity of the universe. Since God is eternal, his body, the universe, must also be eternal. So they came to the same conclusion as Aristotle in the eternality of the universe, but for a completely different theological reason that Aristotle would not accept. But because they believe the universe is eternal, they also believe that there never was a first man who was created by God. They did believe in the story of the Bible of Adam, but they felt that that story was, was narrated incorrectly. Adam was born from human parents, but he was a special prophet who conveyed the wishes of the moon deity. They profess that Adam taught them how to cultivate the soil. They teach about Noah as well, being a cultivator of the soil, but who was evil because he rejected the worship of idols and was thus beaten and imprisoned for his false beliefs in God. It's almost like a mirror image of the Bible, you know, when you think about it. There's like the Bible, which set, talks about the practice of monotheism by people who we regard as righteous. And then you have sort of like the, the dark mirror image of the Bible, which is the Nabataean agriculture, which describes the whole story from the perspective of the uh, world of idolatry, right? And it basically portrays all of our heroes as villains, and it portrays the belief in monotheism as being erroneous, instead of idolatry being erroneous. They say that Seth too, Adam's son, was reject, uh, rejected the beliefs of his father, Adam, in moon worship. They tell many outlandish fables that show a deficiency of intellect. They relate that Adam brought with him from, in, uh, from India to Babylon marvelous things like a golden tree that could grow golden leaves, a stone tree, a green tree that could not burn, a tree that could shelter 10,000 men, and leaves that could encompass a human being. Even though they have a philosophical belief in the eternity of the universe, namely that nature is unchanging, they persist in believing outlandish things that are counter-philosophical and impossible for nature to produce. And basically the Rambam is, um, is uh, denigrating the intellectual quality of the Nabataean agriculture by basically saying that it appeals to the lowest elements of society who are superstitious people and believe in elves and fairies and so forth. 
Their whole portrayal of Adam as an idolater is in order to promote their belief that the celestial bodies are deities, and they build up this very, very fanciful structure that bolsters their belief that the celestial bodies are gods. Avraham arose and represented the exact opposite of what they believed. He affirmed the belief in a transcendent God that is neither a body or a force within a body who created all of existence, not who existed eternally together with an eternal existence. He thus publicly refuted the Sabean beliefs. Scripture thus describes this as Vayita Eshel Bive'er Shava. If you take a look in Genesis chapter 21, Parshat Vayera, it says that Avram planted a certain kind of tree in Be'er Sheva, Vayikra Sham B'Shem Hashem Kel Olam, and he called out there in the name of God, the, the eternal God. Now, Kel Olam presumably refers to God being the being, the sole being that is eternal, meaning that God, the eternal one, brings rise to things that are not eternal, namely creation. And, and therefore, um, um, and by the way, the Rambam makes reference to this verse back in section 2, chapter 13, page 282 in the Pines edition, and he notes that idea as well. And it's also quite interesting that in this context, the Torah describes Avraham as planting a tree, perhaps to counteract the Sabean agriculturalists, even though the Rambam doesn't say that explicitly. The next thing the Rambam writes about the Sabeans is that they set up idolatrous statues and shrines. They believe that these statues channeled prophetic knowledge from the celestial deities. They also believed in, this, in certain sp uh, species of trees, which would be planted in order to channel the celestial deities' spiritual influence, and, and which, which then spoke to people in their sleep, almost the kind of pseudo-prophecy that could be channeled from the, the, the celestial deities um, uh, through the planting of these trees. These people are described in our Torah, says the Rambam, as the worshippers of Baal and Asherah. Their belief in the celestial powers caused them to completely forsake God. As scripture states in the first book of Kings, that great, that uh, famous tournament on, on, on the mountain between the worshippers of Baal and Eliyahu Hanavi. It says, Vayikru'u b'shem ha-Baal me'haboker v'ad ha-tzoharayim le'mor ha-Baal anenu. They were so completely invested in their idolatry that they only called out to Baal to the exclusion of, of the Jewish deity. Many of these worshipers promoted the practices of soothsayers, enchanters, sorcerers, charmers, consulters with spirits, wizards, and necromancers, all of which are thus forbidden by the Torah. And so we're getting now an, a, a crystallization of what the Rambam wants to communicate in this chapter which is there are many mitzvot whose sole purpose is to detach us and to disincentivize us from having anything to do with Sabianism, okay, the pagan uh, religion of the time. Both Avraham and Moses took action against the Sabians. Avraham preached convincingly against these people, and he made that his life project. Um, and as a matter of fact, the Rambam says, I make reference to this in my, in my Mishnah Torah when I talk about the laws of idolatry. And we're just going to read a little portion of it, which says as follows. Let, and we, we, this is in from the first chapter of Hilchot Avodah Zarah, where the Rambam writes as follows. Kevin Shenigmal Eitanze, referring to Abraham, once he was weaned and raised, Hitchil Shotet Bedato, Vuhu Katan, 
he, his, his thoughts began to develop more and more. And he began to think about the condition of day versus night. He began to think to himself, must there not be a conductor who causes the sun to rise in the morning and to set at night, and who causes the moon to, to also go through its orbits and the stars to go through their orbits? It can't be propelled by its own energy. Uh, and, and there was no one to instruct Avram. He had, there was no one to teach him the right path. He was entrenched among idolaters, Hatipshim, who were foolish. And his mother and father, everyone, his whole family were idolaters, were pagans, were Sabaeans. And he basically got caught up in the shrines of the Sabaeans, because that was all they, that he knew. But his, his thoughts um, took him to other places. He realized that what this was all wrong. Until he finally evolved to arrive at the truth. He was able to come to an understanding of what is proper and correct based on his correct uh, use of his intellect. He came to the conclusion that there's only one God and that he is, rather, that he is the one who causes everything in existence to rotate and move. And he created everything, and therefore nothing exists without God. He realized that the whole world is wrong, <laughs> which is something that most people aren't courageous enough to admit. And he realized that mankind had lost its way. And perhaps one time in, in, in more ancient times, maybe they were aware that there was an overarching God. But in his present time, because people worship these intermediary forces, they became the sole deities. Until finally, by the time he reached the age of 40, he finally fully recognized his creator. And at that time, when he developed enough of his, his ability, uh, his uh, dialectics and his ability to communicate, he began to try and refute the beliefs of where he lived in Urkasdim. And to try to create disputations. And he said, you folks, you're not doing the right thing. And he broke the statues, the, the idolatrous statues that of the Sabaeans. And we should only worship God. And it is only God that, to whom we should bow and to offer sacrifices. And we want to make sure that the whole world recognizes this God. And that we should destroy all other talismans and images and statues so that the world is not pulled astray by these things. 
like those people who err thinking that the statues themselves are the deities and the intermediary forces are the deities. Once Avraham was successful in his rhetoric, uh, the king, recognizing that Avraham was going to undermine his entire kingdom, decided to uh, he decided to kill him. And Avraham experienced the miracle. And instead of being killed by the king, we know that he was thrown into the fiery furnace. A miracle occurred, and he was uh, he survived, and he fled to Haran. And that's where he really gained adherence and started to preach openly. And that, you know, again, the belief in monotheism is what he spread to everyone. And he became an itinerant preacher, give, spreading forth, so to speak, uh, you know, the gospel, if you will. Until he reached the land of Canaan, the land of Israel. And he called out to God, as it says, he called out in the name of God, the very verse that the Rambam just quoted in our in our chapter of Morena Buchim. So the Rambam in Mishnah Torah does not go through this whole background of the Sabaeans as he does in, in Morena Buchim, but nonetheless, you see that it's very consistent. And the Rambam continues that with the giving of the Torah, Moshe commanded that the practitioners of these pagan practices among the Jews should be put to death. In other words, Avraham used the, um, the attractive method of trying to convince and persuade people gently and softly that their beliefs were erroneous. But by the time we get to Moshe Rabbeinu and the giving of the Torah and the Jews were being told, you're going to inherit the land and dispossess the indigenous inhabitants, you will become the new indigenous people. You must make sure that you eradicate idolatry completely so that if anyone persists in their idolatrous practices, they must be put to death. All these commandments were given to avoid the practices of these people and that their practices are offensive to God. They were given so that the Jewish people never come to emulate the Sabaeans. As the verse says in Deuteronomy chapter 12, Do not do any of these idolatrous practices for your God. Because everything that is abominable to God did these people do in their witchcraft and talismans and magic and, and necromancy and so forth. For example, even their own children, they pass through fire for the sake of their gods and are willing to sacrifice their own children. And so the, so the Torah basically is telling us, even if the rest of the world follows an erroneous belief, you must not uh, capitulate to them. Almost sounds like, you know, in modern times, what's the idolatry? Who are the Sabaeans of today? They're the world that sides with, um, with, the, uh, with, with Hamas, you know? That's, that's the idolatry of today. They glorify death and are willing to pass their children through fire and blow up their children and put them up as human shields. Okay, enough with the political commentary, let's go. In sum, the Rambam writes, and I quote, all the commandments that are concerned with the prohibition against idolatry and everything that is connected with it or leads toward it or may be ascribed to it are of manifest utility, meaning God gave us a bunch of mitzvot that are all designed for a very significant utility, which is 
to wean us away, to pull us away from the Sabean practices. All of them are meant to bring about deliverance from these unhealthy opinions and turn one's attention away from all that is useful with regard to the two perfections, namely body and soul. How great then is the utility of every commandment that delivers us from this great error and brings us back to the correct belief. And thus the Rambam has now explained that that would explain an entire corpus of mitzvot that are found in the Torah that you might be scratching your head if you didn't understand the historical context that they're purely meant to pull us away from Sabean belief so that we have the ability now to work on intellectual perfection without being distracted by competing erroneous beliefs. Instead, the Torah teaches that Hashem does not require any hardship, hardship from us to make these ultimate sacrifices, but rather only two things are required of us, namely the love and fear of Hashem, as scripture states in Deuteronomy chapter 10, What does God ask of you, O Israel? Rather, he only wants you to revere him, to walk in all of his ways and to love him, and to worship God with all your heart and soul. This helps us understand so many of those mitzvot that don't seem to have a reason. They were given to pull us away from the beliefs of the Sabaeans, and I will expand upon this later when I go into the specific mitzvot. The main book of the Sabaeans, the Rambam says next, is the Nabataean agriculture. It contains beliefs of how to best harness the soil, attracting those with vulgar souls to practices such as talismans, summoning spirits, demons, and ghouls. The Rambam, which we're going to skip over, details certain fables contained in this book about Adam and his usage of different plants. If people had not by today accepted a belief in God, we'd be in a much worse off state than we were even back then. The Rambam basically says that thank God for Avraham and the advent of the Jewish people, because if it weren't for Avraham and his descendants, we would still be idolaters today, and the practices that we would be doing today would be even worse than what was being done in Avraham's time, because we would become more sophisticated in learning how to perform human sacrifice and the like. The book also relates the story of a prophet hero named Tammuz, who tried to convince the king to worship the celestial bodies, but the king put him to death. Consequently, the Sabean practice is to have a day of mourning on the first of the month of Tammuz. Ironic, isn't it, that a Jewish month is known as Tammuz when it's actually named after a very famous idolater who was a hero of the Sabeans. They also, we're not going to get into that now, but it is interesting that the months of the Jewish calendar are of, have names that come from pagan sources. There's a very interesting commentary from Rabbeinu Bechaya who talks about this, that this is a sign of our diaspora existence, that even the calendar dates are based on pagan sources. They also twisted the Genesis account based on their knowledge of the Torah's narrative of Ma'asei Bereshit, of the account of the creation. They distorted the story of Adam, the serpent, and the tree of knowledge in order to lead the masses astray toward their religious beliefs and the eternality of the universe. I know that you do not need to be dissuaded, but there are the Rambam is speaking to the student for whom he has written the guide. But there are common folk who confuse the Sabean narratives and the authentic narratives of our Torah, and that's why I feel so obligated to detail all of what they believe here. And the Rambam therefore details many other writings that have been translated into Arabic, all of which are defenses of idolatry. Some are attributed to Aristotle, but they are forgeries. 
All these writings detail the various idolatrous practices, such as the building of shrines and statues, of altars, of animal and other kinds of sacrifices, of festivals, temple worship, setting up of the temple of intellectual forms, which perhaps the Rambam will get into later, setting up images on high mountains, asherot, stone monuments, and others which I will bring to your attention later. Our Torah is designed to negate all of these practices and belief. This is what the Rambam calls the first intention or the primary objective extending over the entirety of the Torah. And thus, our sages, and this is what, what we'll finish today, commenting on in the context of bringing a sin offering for unintentionally worshiping idols, the Torah says um, that you must instead follow eight kol asher Hashem aleichem biad Moshe, everything that God has commanded to you via Moses. Min hayom asher Hashem Hashem from the very time that God first presented you with the Torah onwards. Now, even though this verse is mentioned in the context of a person who has to atone for having unintentionally worshipped idols, it seems that the worship of idols is like the totality of what God has commanded you. And that's why the sages state in a number of places, we're just quoting from the Sifra, the Sifrei over here, that minayin ata omer shekol hamodeh ba'avodazara kofer ba'aseret hadibrot. That the Sifrei says that he who embraces idolatry is rejecting the Ten Commandments. And it quotes verses to attest to that. And and that truth is, even a person who embraces idolatry is rejecting everything that Moshe gave us. That's a typo, biad Moshe. That everything that God has commanded you via Moshe is really repudiated when one embraces idolatry. And therefore, the conclusion of the Midrash is, Magid HaKatuv SheKol HaModeh BaAvodah Zara Kofer BaAseret HaDibrot UVameh SheNitzdaveh Moshe. Anyone who embraces idolatry is denying the Ten Commandments, the, the events at Sinai, and everything that was commanded to Moses. Because he basically is saying that I only believe in these minor deities, and I reject the ability for man to access the upper deity. And you also are denying everything that was communicated to the prophets. And everything that was communicated and given over to our forefathers. But conversely, anyone who repudiates and rejects idolatry, is embracing and admitting to the truths of the entire Torah. And that's how the Rambam concludes the chapter. He's not done with these pagan practices because he has to go back and explain to us why these people were so uh, committed to these pagan practices because they had utilitarian benefit. They felt that these practices would help them improve their lives in some way in the physical realm. So that's the, um, that's the presentation today for chapter 29. Let's take a look at some of our comments here from some of the people who are here online. So let me just I, um, let me just go back for a second. Um, I'm glad to hear that it's a beautiful day in 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 Israel today. We all wish that we were there. Um, um, well, you're, uh, as Debbie asks, the Rambam is going to talk about specifically the offering of sacrifices that is so heavily detailed in the Torah. 
And the Rambam's thesis, as we'll see later on, I believe it's chapter 32, if I'm not mistaken, the Rambam is going to teach us that the reason there is such a heavy emphasis on karbanot in the Torah is precisely to pull us away from Sabean paganistic practices of other types of sacrifices that they offered to their deities. Okay, yes, that is correct. Were herbs a part of pagan magic? I'm not familiar with paganism. Sounds right, because from what I used to watch on TV about witches throwing the eye of Newt or whatever, I don't know. Um, is 20,000 years a bit of an exaggeration? Most likely. Um, it probably is. And uh, there are other exaggerations that are found in books that describe ancient cultures. And so that would not be surprising. Yes, the God, Abraham was thrown into a fiery furnace, as is recorded in the Midrash, um, that uh, the, the King Nimrod, discovering that Avraham was in, uh, creating an insurrection among his people, had him thrown into a fiery furnace. A miracle occurred, and he encountered angels in the furnace who protected him from the heat, and he emerged unscathed from the furnace. Next, could that idea that being descended from doesn't necessarily mean genetically also uh, also uh, refer with evil being descended from Amalek? Well, yes, in a loose term, uh, the world identifies itself, any monotheistic individual and, and faith community identifies themselves as being descended from, as albeit not genetically, but ideologically are descended from uh, Avraham. And yes, Presumably so. Anyone who embraces the evil um, um, uh, homicidal tendencies of Amalek is called a descendant of Amalek. That, I would say that's accurate. So this could be why Christians do not believe that the creation story is literal. I'm not sure whether, I, I don't think that the Christian world has anything to do with the book, the Nabataean agriculture book. Um, so, but um, there are many, many Jew, Jewish writers who did not interpret the creation story literally either. Uh, Adam and Chaba are representative, not literal. Okay, that'll be something for another time. Would things have come out differently if any of the Nevi'e Habal had called out to Hashem? We don't know. We don't know. Maybe Hashem would have felt the need to respond to them in some way uh, that was not completely destructive. But um, it's, it's, it's not clear. But certainly they didn't even think to call out to Hashem. And I think the point that the Rambam is making is that the people of, uh, of the Sabean nature didn't feel, they may have believed that God exists, but they didn't feel that he was accessible to human beings. Uh, is there not a Rashi that talks about the souls that God, that Avraham and Sarah made in Haran? Yes, absolutely. Um, and uh, I mean, the Torah says, nefesh asher asu b'charan. They, were, they succeeded in converting people to their monotheistic faith. Okay, I'm going to skip the one about abortion. Tammuz is a sad month. That's true. Tammuz is a sad month. Um, that doesn't. It's not necessarily because of the the name of the pagan, uh, because there are other months that are named after paganistic beliefs. But perhaps there is some truth to that. I'm not sure. It occurred to me that there are sects of Islamic people who believe in Allah, but also lesser gods, and that could be because they didn't outlaw them. Not so clear about that. Islam today is extremely, extremely emphatic about the rejection of any other deities except except Allah. There is really is no, there is no mainstream Islamic uh, sect that I'm aware of that believes that it's acceptable to believe in any kind of subservient deity. 
because uh, to me Bedouins have some sort of I don't know. I'm not familiar, like but I, wood I, gods or stone yeah. gods. What what, what 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 I can tell you is that the the emphasis on monotheism on the unitariness of God is mm -hmm. was really part of the Rambam's worldview precisely because he wasn't an Islamic milieu because there the, the emphasis in Islam is extremely uh, accentuated. Okay, we'll hold it here for today, everybody. Uh, thanks for joining us, and Bizrat Hashem. We'll continue with Chapter 30 next time. Take care. Thank you very much, Rabbi. Thank you. Take care, everybody.